Section 32 of The Ego and His Own. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ego and His Own by Max Stirner. My Intercourse, Part 9. Intercourse hitherto has rested on love, regardful behavior, doing for each other, as one owed it to himself to make himself blessed, or owed himself the bliss of taking up into himself the supreme essence and bringing it to a verity, a truth and reality, so one owed it to others to help them realize their essence and their calling in both cases one owed it to the essence of man to contribute to its realization but one owes it neither to himself to make anything out of himself nor to others to make anything out of them for one owes nothing to his essence and that of others intercourse resting on essence is an intercourse with the spook not with anything real if I hold intercourse with the supreme essence, I am not holding intercourse with myself. And if I hold intercourse with the essence of man, I am not holding intercourse with men. The natural man's love becomes through culture a commandment, but as commandment it belongs to man, as such not to me. It is my essence, about which much ado is made not my property man i.e humanity presents that demand to me love is demanded it is my duty instead therefore of being really one for me it has been one for the generality man as his property or peculiarity it becomes man every man to love love is the duty and calling of man etc consequently i must again vindicate love for myself and deliver it out of the power of man with the great m what was originally mine but accidentally mine instinctively mine i was invested with as the property of man i became fifoth in loving I became the retainer of mankind, only a specimen of this species, and acted, loving, not as I, but as man, as a specimen of man, the humanly. The whole condition of civilization is the feudal system, the property being man's or mankind's, not mine, a monstrous feudal state was founded the individual robbed of everything everything left to man the individual had to appear at last as a sinner through and through am i perchance to have no lively interest in the person of another are his joy and his will not to lie at my heart is the enjoyment that i furnish him not to be more to me than other enjoyments of my own on the contrary, I can with joy sacrifice to him numberless enjoyments. I can deny myself numberless things for the enhancement of his pleasure, and I can hazard for him what without him was the dearest to me, my life, 
my welfare, my freedom. Why it constitutes my pleasure and my happiness to refresh myself with his happiness and his pleasure. But myself, my own self, I do not sacrifice to him, but remain an egoist and enjoy him. If I sacrifice to him everything that but for my love to him I should keep, that is very simple and even more usual in life than it seems to be, but it proves nothing further than that this one passion is more powerful in me than all the rest. Christianity, too, teaches us to sacrifice all other passions to this, but if to one passion I sacrifice others, I do not on that account go so far as to sacrifice myself, or to sacrifice anything of that whereby I truly am myself. I do not sacrifice my peculiar value, my ownness. Where this bad case occurs, love cuts no better figure than any other passion that I obey blindly. The ambitious man who is carried away by ambition and remains deaf to every warning that a calm moment begets him has let this passion grow up into a deposit against whom he abandons all power of dissolution. He has given up himself because he cannot dissolve himself and consequently cannot absolve himself from the passion. He is possessed. I love men too, not merely individuals, but everyone. But I love them with the consciousness of egoism. I love them because love makes me happy. I love because loving is natural to me, because it pleases me. I know no commandment of love. I have a fellow feeling with every feeling being, and their torment torments. Their refreshment refreshes me too. I can kill them, not torture them. Per contra, the high-souled, virtuous Philistine prince Rudolph in the mysteries of Paris, because the wicked provoke his indignation, plans their torture. That fellow feeling proves only that the feeling of those who feel is mine too, my property, in opposition to which the pitiless dealing of the righteous man, e.g. against notary ferrand, is like the unfeelings of that robber Procrustes, who cut off or stretched his prisoner's legs to the measure of his bedstead. Rudolph's bedstead, which he cuts men to fit, is the concept of the good. The full right, virtue, etc., makes people hard-hearted and intolerant. Rudolph does not feel like the notary, but the reverse. He feels that it serves the rascal right. That is no fellow feeling. You love man, therefore you torture the individual man. The egoist, your philanthropy, love of men, is the tormenting of men. If I see the loved one suffer, I suffer with him, and I know no rest till I have tried everything to comfort and cheer him. If I see him glad, I too become glad over his joy. From this it does not follow that suffering or joy is caused in me by the same thing that brings out this effect in him, 
as is sufficiently proved by every bodily pain which i do not feel as he does his turf pains him but his pain pains me but because i cannot bear the troubled crease on the beloved forehead for that reason and therefore for my sake i kiss it away if i did not love this person he might go right on making creases they would not trouble me i am only driving away my trouble how now has anybody or anything whom and which i do not love a right to be loved by me is my love first or is his right first parents kinsfolk fatherland nation native town etc finally fellow men in general brothers fraternity assert that they have a right to my love and lay claim to it without further ceremony they look upon it as their property and upon me if i do not respect this as a robber who takes from them what pertains to them and is theirs i should love if love is a commandment and law then i must be educated into it cultivated up to it and if i trespass against it punished hence people will exercise as strong a moral influence as possible on me to bring me to love and there is no doubt that one can work up and seduce men to love as one can to any other passion if you like to hate hate runs through whole races merely because the ancestors of the one belong to the gulfs those of the other to the gilflings but love is not a commandment but like each of my feelings my property acquire i e purchase my property and then i will make it over to you a church a nation a fatherland a family etc that does not know how to acquire my love i need not love and i fix the purchase price of my love quite at my pleasure selfish love is far distant from unselfish mystical or romantic love one can love everything possible not merely men but an object in general wine one's fatherland etc love becomes blind and crazy by a must taking it out of my power infatuation romantic by a should entering into it i e by the object becoming sacred for me or my becoming bound to it by duty conscience oath now the object no longer exists for me but i for it love is a possessiveness not as my feeling as such i rather keep it in my possession as property but through the alienness of the object for religious love consists in the commandment to love in the beloved a holy one or to adhere to a holy one for unselfish love there are objects absolutely lovable for which my heart is to beat e g fellow men or my wedded mate kinsfolk etc holy love loves the holy in the beloved and therefore exerts itself also to make of the beloved more and more a holy one a man 
the beloved is an object that should be loved by me he is not an object of my love on account of because of or by my loving him but is an object of love in and of himself not i make him an object of love but he is such to begin with for it is here irrelevant that he has become so by my choice if so it be as with a fiance a spouse etc since even so he has in any case as the person once chosen obtained a right of his own to my love and i because i have loved him am under obligation to love him for ever he is therefore not an object of my love but of love in general an object that should be loved love appertains to him is due to him or is his right while i am under obligation to love him my love i e the toll of love that i pay him is in truth his love which he only collects from me as toll every love to which there clings but the smallest speck of obligation is an unselfish love and so far as this speck reaches a possessiveness he who believes that he owes the object of his love anything loves romantically or religiously family love e g as it is usually understood as piety is a religious love love of fatherland preached as patriotism likewise all our romantic loves move in the same pattern everywhere the hypocrisy or rather self-deception of an unselfish love and interest in the object for the object's sake not for my sake and mine alone religious or romantic love is distinguished from sensual love by the difference of the object indeed but not by the dependence of the relation to it in the latter regard both are possessiveness but in the former the one object is profane the other sacred the dominion of the object over me is the same in both cases only that it is one time a sensuous one the other time a spiritual ghostly one my love is my own only when it consists altogether in a selfish and egoistic interest and when consequently the object of my love is really my object or my property i owe my property nothing and have no duty to it as little as i might have a duty to my eye if nevertheless i guard it with the greatest care i do so on my account antiquity lacked love as little as do christian times the god of love is older than the god of love but the mystical possessiveness belongs to the moderns the possessiveness of love lies in the alienation of the object or in my powerlessness as against its alienness and superior power to the egoist nothing is high enough for him to humble himself before it nothing so independent that he would live for love of it nothing so sacred that he would sacrifice himself to it 
the egoist's love rises in selfishness flows in the bed of selfishness and empties into selfishness again whether this can still be called love if you know another word for it go ahead and choose it then the sweet word love may wither with the departed world for the present i at least find none in our christian language and hence stick to the old sound and love my object my property only as one of my feelings do i harbour love but as a power above me as a divine power as feuerbach says as a passion that i am not to cast off as a religious and moral duty i scorn it as by feeling it is mine as a principle to which i consecrate and vow my soul it is a dominator and divine just as hatred as a principle is diabolical one not better than the other in short egoistic love i.e my love is neither holy or unholy neither divine nor diabolical a love that is limited by faith is an untrue love the sole limitation that does not contradict the essence of love is the self-limitation of love by reason intelligence love that scores the rigour the law of intelligence is theoretically a false love practically a ruinous one so love is in its essence rational so thinks feuerbach the believer on the contrary thinks love is in its essence believing the one inveighs against the rational the other against unbelieving love to both it can at most rank as a splendidium vitium do not both leave love standing even in the form of unreason and unbelief they do not dare to say irrational or unbelieving love is nonsense is not love as little as they are willing to say irrational or unbelieving tears are not tears but if even irrational love etc must count as love and if they are nevertheless to be unworthy of man there follows simply this love is not the highest thing but reason or faith even the unreasonable and the unbelieving can love but love has value only when it is that of a rational or believing person it is an illusion when feuerbach calls the rationality of love its self-limitation the believer might with the same right call beliefs its self-limitation irrational love is neither false nor ruinous it does its service as love toward the world especially toward men i am to assume a particular feeling and meet them with love with the feeling of love from the beginning certainly in this there is revealed far more free will and self-determination than when i let myself be stormed by way of the world by all possible feelings and remain exposed to the most checkered most accidental impressions i go to the world rather with a preconceived feeling as if it were a prejudice 
and a preconceived opinion. I have prescribed to myself in advance my behaviour toward it, and despite all its temptations, feel and think about it only as I have once determined to. Against the dominion of the world, I secure myself by the principle of love, for whatever may come, I love. The ugly, e.g., makes a repulsive impression on me, but determined to love, I master this impression as I do every anthropy. But the feeling to which I have determined and condemned myself from the start is a narrow feeling, because it is a predestined one, of which I myself am not able to get clear or to declare myself clear, because preconceived it is a prejudice. I no longer show myself in face of the world, but my love shows itself. The world indeed does not rule me, but so much the more inevitably does the spirit of love rule this spirit. If I first said, I love the world, I now add likewise, I do not love it, for I annihilate it, as I annihilate myself, I dissolve it. I do not limit myself to one feeling for men, but give free play to all that I am capable of. Why should I not dare speak it out in all its glaringness? Yes, I utilize the world and men. With this I can keep myself open to every impression, without being torn away from myself by one of them. I can love, love with a full heart, and let the most consuming glow of passion burn in my heart, without taking the beloved one for anything else than the nourishment of my passion, on which it ever refreshes itself anew. All of my care for him applies only to the object of my love, only to him whom my love requires, only to him the warmly loved. How indifferent would he be to me without this, my love? I feed only my love with him. I utilize him for this only. I enjoy him. Let us choose another convenient example. I see how men are fettered in dark superstition by a swarm of ghosts. If, to the extent of my powers, I let a bit of daylight fall in on a nocturnal spookery, is it perchance because I love to you to inspire this in me? Do I write out of love to men? No, I write because I want to procure for my thoughts as existence in the world, and even if I foresaw that these thoughts would deprive you of your rest and your peace, even if I saw the bloodiest wars and the fall of many generations springing up from this seed of thought, I would nevertheless scatter it. Do with it what you will and can. That is your affair, and does not trouble me. You will perhaps have only trouble, combat and death from it. Very few will draw joy from it. If your will lay at my heart, I should act as the church did in withholding the Bible from the laity or Christian governments, which make it a sacred duty for themselves to protect the common people from bad books. 
but not only for your sake not even for truth's sake either do i speak out what i think no i sing as the bird sings that on the bough alights the song that from me springs is paid that well requites i sing because i am a singer but i use you for it becomes i need ears where the world comes in my way and it comes in my way everywhere i consume it to quiet the hunger of my egoism for me you are nothing but my food even as i too am fed upon and turned to use by you we have only one relation to each other that of unusableness of utility of use we owe each other nothing for what i seem to owe you i owe at most to myself if i show you a cherry air in order to cheer you likewise then your cheeriness is of consequence to me and my air serves my wish to a thousand others whom i do not aim to cheer i do not show it one has to be educated up to that love which founds itself on the essence of man or in the ecclesiastical and moral period lies upon us as a commandment in what fashion moral influence the chief ingredient of our education seeks to regulate the intercourse of men shall here be looked at with egoistic eyes in one example at least those who educate us make it their concern early to break us of lying and to inoculate the principle that one must always tell the truth if selfishness were made the basis for this rule every one would easily understand how by lying he falls away that confidence in him which he hopes to awaken in others and how correct the maximum proves nobody believes a liar even when he tells the truth yet at the same time he would also feel that he had to meet with truth only him whom he authorized to hear the truth if a spy walks in disguise through the hostile camp and is asked who he is the askers are assuredly entitled to inquire after his name but the disguised man does not give them the right to learn the truth from him he tells them what he likes not only the fact and yet morality demands thou shalt not lie by morality those persons are vested with the right to expect the truth but by me they are not vested with that right and i recognize only the right that i impart in a gathering of revolutionists the police force their way in and ask the orator for his name everybody knows that the police have the right to do so but they do not have it from the revolutionist since he is their enemy he tells them a false name and cheats them with a lie the police do not act so foolishly either as to count on their enemy's love of truth on the contrary they do not believe without further ceremony but have the questioned individual identified if they can nay the state everywhere proceeds incredulously with individuals 
because in the egoism it recognises its natural enemy, it invariably demands a voucher, and he who cannot show vouchers falls a prey to its investigating inquisition. The state does not believe nor trust the individual, and so of itself places itself within him in the convention of lying. It trusts me only when it has convinced itself of the truth of my statement, for which there often remains to it no other means than the oath. How clearly, too, this, the oath, proves that the state does not count on our credibility and love of truth, but on our interest, our selfishness. It relies on our not wanting to fall foul of God by a purgy. Now let one imagine a French revolutionist in the year 1788, who among friends let fall the now well-known phrase, the world will have no rest till the last king is hanged with the guts of the last priest. The king then still had all power, and when the utterance is betrayed by an accident, yet without its being possible to produce witnesses confession is demanded from the accused is he to confess or not if he denies he lies and remains unpunished if he confesses he is candid and is beheaded if truth is more than everything else to him all right let him die only a paltry poet could try to make a tragedy out of the end of his life. For what interest is there in seeing how a man succumbs from cowardice? But if he had the courage not to be a slave of truth and sincerity, he would ask somewhat thus, Why need the judges know what I have spoken among friends? If I had wished them to know, I should have said it to them as i said it to my friends i will not have them know it they force themselves into my confidence without my having called them to it and made them my confidence they will learn what i will keep secret come on then you who wish to break my will by your will and try your arts you can torture me by the rack you can threaten me with hell and eternal damnation you can make me so nevertheless that I swear a false oath, but the truth you shall not press out of me, for I will lie to you because I have given you no claim and no right to my sincerity. Let God, who is truth, look down ever so threateningly on me. Let lying come ever so hard to me. I have nevertheless the courage of a lie, and even if i were weary of my lie even if nothing appeared to me more welcome than your executioner's sword you nevertheless should not have the joy of finding in me a slave of truth whom by your priestly arts you make a traitor to his will when i spoke those treasonable words i would not have had you know anything of them i now retain the same will and do not let myself be frightened by the curse of the lie. End of section 32 Recording by Elaine Webb, Bristol, England